The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. Today we come to a most remarkable portion of Scripture that is the end of Jesus' sermon called the Olivet Discourse. And you remember, and I think you could scarcely forget after 19 weeks of sermons on this particular subject, that Jesus is here talking about his second coming. And this sermon was prompted by a question at the beginning of chapter 24 when the disciples asked him, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and the end of the world? And little did they know that Jesus was about to open up to them a world of information, probably far much more than they actually expected to hear. Uh, They were unprepared for these teachings in chapter 24 and 25. The kingdom that they expected was not ready to begin. They hoped that it would come in their time, but it was set for a far-off distant time. Now, in chapter 19, they were told, the disciples were told that they would sit on thrones judging Israel. But they didn't understand that when Jesus said that, that he meant that they would be in their glorified, resurrected bodies in this kingdom that would come in the far-off future. And when Jesus was through with the sermon, they still didn't understand things very well because there were questions that popped up in their minds over and over. Uh, Just before he ascended back into heaven from near this very same spot on the Mount of Olives, they asked Jesus then, Lord, will thou at this time restore thy kingdom to Israel? And so they were very troubled in their minds about this teaching. They were without understanding even when they heard these words directly from the mouth of Jesus. And so I don't think that we should wonder why Christians today have so much confusion about the events of the second coming. Now, in our study today, we're going to read this lengthy portion of Scripture. Uh, The subject of these verses is judgment. It's judgment, a particular judgment for a particular people at a particular time. Let's stand, if you would, please, again for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 25 and verse number 31, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. And this is the conclusion of Jesus' sermon, the Olivet Discourse. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them the one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, 
Lord, when saw we thee and hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw thee we a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in. Naked, and ye clothed me not. Sick and in prison, and ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee in hungered, or thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this great sermon that was preached by Jesus. Help us to understand what your word has to say to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Most of you that are in our congregation today were members of our church in 2008. When I began a Sunday night series on the book of Revelation... Uh, I had taught through Revelation two times before, but we'd never really gone into as deep of a study as we did in that particular series. There were 142 sermons over four years, and we went verse by verse and chapter by chapter as I tried to explain just about everything that I could in the book of Revelation, those things that I, that I could cover and I understood myself. And I began that series of teaching with some certain presuppositions that I'd had from previous studies of the book of Revelation. But as I was about two years into the study, I found that there were a few things that I thought really needed to be adjusted in my thinking. And one of those subjects was the survivors of the tribulation and who it was that would actually enter into the millennial kingdom. And that's what this particular passage is all about. It's about who is going into this great millennial kingdom that Christ is going to bring to the earth. Who is in and who is out. And this passage is about judgment, about who the Lord is going to say is worthy to go into that kingdom. And then for others, he says, you cannot go into my kingdom. Now, the passage again is about judgment. Now, I want to talk to you today about, first of all today, about the time of judgment, because we really need to understand what the Bible means when it talks about judgment and whether there is actually more than one judgment or or is there a series of judgments? How many judgments does the Bible talk about? Well, some approach these scriptures from an amillennial viewpoint. Now, that simply means, I know it's a big word, but that simply means amillennial, means without a millennium or without a real kingdom of Christ that will come to the earth. And so they don't believe that there is an actual, actual literal kingdom of Christ that will come to the earth. And so they look at this judgment that we find in Matthew 25 as the final judgment of all time, that this is the very last judgment that will take place before every person enters into the eternal state. In fact, they believe that there's only one judgment, a general judgment. 
Now, you might want to remember that term because actually that's a term we use in theology, a general judgment, and that is one judgment for the saved and the lost. There is one judgment that determines the destiny of every soul in eternity. And so if you don't believe that there is a literal kingdom of God that's coming to the earth, then of necessity you would take this particular passage to be the final judgment, one judgment for both the saved and the lost. And if you read the great confessions of faith, such as the Westminster Confession, it states that there is a day, meaning there is one day, when God is going to judge people of all time. Now, the Westminster Confession is Presbyterian. But even our own confession of faith, the New Hampshire Confession of 1833, and also the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689, states the very same thing. The original New Hampshire Confession, the last article of that confession reads this way, We believe that the end of the world is approaching, that at the last day Christ will descend from heaven and raise the dead from the grave to final retribution, that a solemn separation will then take place, that the wicked will be adjudged to endless punishment and the righteous to endless joy, and that this judgment will fix forever the final state of men in heaven or hell on principles of righteousness." And you can see in that confession that it says there is one judgment for all time. And since we don't believe that is correct, we change the wording to reflect our belief that there is actually going to be a literal kingdom of Christ upon the earth and that there is a separate judgment for the saved and the lost. Now the first of these judgments I want to talk to you about is the judgment of Christians. And that is called the judgment seat of of Christ. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done whether it be good or bad. Now this is a judgment that takes place after the rapture. This is a judgment for Christians of the church age, and this is a judgment to decide the rewards that we're going to receive for faithful service. Now, if you're a Christian, the judgment for your sins was made at the cross. This is not a judgment to talk about the sins that you have committed. And that's why the Apostle Paul talks about deeds, whether they're good or whether they're bad. The good deeds are going to be rewarded, and the bad deeds are going to be discarded as loss. Now, never would we tell anyone that the way that you're saved is by doing good things. Good things don't save you. It's Jesus Christ who saves you. It's his goodness, the merits of his righteousness that saves us. And so when we look at the judgment seat of Christians or the judgment seat of Christ, Christians who appear there are not judged for the sins that they have committed. They're going to be judged for the good deeds that they've done in their body and God is going to reward them for that. Well, this is another area where I adjusted my thinking a little bit because of this passage that we have in Matthew 25. And I'll explain that in just a moment. So the judgment seat of Christ has nothing at all to do with lost people. This is for saved people in the church age. And there is a separate judgment, another judgment for those that are lost. And that judgment is the great white throne judgment. The lost are going to be judged at the great white throne. 
And that's described in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Now, I'd like you to turn your Bible there, if you would, because this passage is well worth our time to look at. Uh, This is actually the final judgment for the lost. And every person from the beginning of history who is not a true believer in Jehovah God is going to appear at this judgment. And that means Cain, who killed his brother Abel, all the way to the very last person who did not know Christ as Savior. Revelation 20 and verse 11. John's writing, he said, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire." So that is the great white throne judgment. It is the last judgment. This is a judgment that occurs after the millennial kingdom. And it's separated from the judgment of Christians at the rapture by a period of 1,007 years. That is seven years for tribulation and 1,000 years for the kingdom of God on this earth. So these are two judgments that the scriptures speak of. A judgment for Christians that, that uh, in the church age, that happens after the rapture. And then there is this judgment for the loss that occurs at the end of the millennial period. But in this passage of Matthew chapter 25, the Bible is actually speaking about a different judgment. And this is called the judgment of the nations. And the timing of this judgment is apparent from verses 31 and 32. There Jesus says, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them the one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. Now in one sense, you could say that this is a final judgment, because those that go into the millennial kingdom are people that are saved, These are people that will always be saved, and eventually they're going to be in heaven. But the ones that don't go in don't have any other opportunities. Uh, They they are reserved for punishment in hell, and they're going to be called up to to this terrible judgment, uh, a horrible judgment that will appear come at the end of the millennial period. That's that great white throne. And that's where they're going to receive the final sentence of Revelation chapter 20. Now, what I've given you is just a very short primer on judgments. And it's important for us to distinguish these. And we shouldn't be surprised that the last thing that Jesus would talk about in this great sermon is judgment. And because that's a theme that appears over and over throughout Scripture. And I want to add this as well, that it should be no surprise that he speaks of a second coming in which his purpose is to bring judgment. And the great mystery is not that Jesus should come a second time, but really the thing that ought to astound us is that Jesus would come the first time. That he would come in the way that he came. 
There was the humility of his life. And there was the, the suffering of his death. And why that Christ would come in such a way and do what he did for us is a mystery beyond human comprehension. Even the angels are stumped by it. Peter said that angels desire to look into this matter of the gospel. And he implies that there is wonder and amazement as the angels contemplate how the Lord that they knew would step down from his throne in glory and that he would come and do what he did for ungrateful man. And so the first advent of Christ is totally baffling to us. But the second is not at all. And that's because we would expect that the king of glory would come as a king and that he would bring judgment for the horrible treatment that he received in the first advent. Now, if you'll turn to Revelation chapter 19, if you're still in in, in Revelation, you just have a page to go to here. Chapter 19, we also have a passage that's worth reading because it shows us that Christ is not going to come in humility the second time. Our text says that he's coming in glory and he's coming surrounded by a host of his angels. In Revelation 19 verse 11, it says, And I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he that judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Verse number 11 says, He judges and makes war. The white horse indicates his righteousness, that he is the righteous judge. He treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And so that passage is talking about judgment. And that teaching is... Consistent with what Jesus said in John 5.22. There he said that the Father has committed all judgment to the Son. And so you should be very much aware of this side of Jesus that most people do not see. I, I, w- I, would, I would really not suspect that you would have a conversation with anyone that would begin this way. I mean, somebody that you didn't know and you wanted to talk to them about the gospel, I doubt very seriously that you would begin by saying, Jesus is the judge, and if you do not believe in him, he's going to cast you into the fires of hell. You probably wouldn't begin many conversations about Jesus in that way. And yet, it is accurate. It's plainly the truth. Even though most people believe that judgment is wholly incompatible with Jesus' teachings. But one of the things that we notice in this sermon as we've studied over these many weeks is that there's much more said here about the consequences of unbelief than of belief. There are two chapters that are filled with warnings about watching for Christ and being prepared because he's going to come suddenly. And when he comes, he's going to judge. And those that are not ready, he says, I'm going to send away into everlasting punishment. During the time of the Reformation, there was a great deal of preaching about the first advent of Christ. 
The theology of the first advent is extremely important. What Christ did through his atoning sacrifice and how that the Bible teaches that we are justified by our faith alone in Jesus Christ. And those were doctrines that were thoroughly discussed during that time and they were straightened out from many, many years of Roman Catholic abuse. The Roman, uh, the reformers rather, spoke much about Christ's meekness and about his humility. That he came as a suffering servant. He came in tenderness and graciousness. And that fact or that side of Jesus knowing who he is was emphasized like never before. If you read the Puritans, you'll find there a warm heart of love and affection for the matchless wonders of God's grace in Jesus Christ. But they also had a very strong emphasis on the second coming. And they said that Jesus is coming back, but he's not coming in the same way. That he will come as a judge, and he's going to set the eternal eternal state, and we should be fearful of his return. The horrible scenes of the tribulation as God blasts the world, and and as there's this complete upheaval of the cosmos... That should strike fear in the hearts of people. He is not going to come as a gentle lamb. We've just read he comes as a warrior. He comes as a revenger of blood. He comes as a mighty king. And he comes as the righteous judge who will by, as God's word says, by no means clear the guilty. And so the great reformers of the Reformation, they preached about that. And they preached it to stir people up to this awareness and and just hit them with this shock and awe that they ought to stay away from sin unless they face the fearful wrath of judgment. And when you read Revelation chapter 20 about the great white throne, how could that not give you pause? Christ is the judge who sits on the throne. And what you have to recognize is that role of Christ as much as you recognize the role that he is the Savior. That he's the one who went to the cross. And the cross, that is the very worst humiliation that the king of glory could ever endure. And it's because of the cross that God is not going to cut anyone any slack. Those who reach the great white throne are not going to be there to present a case of why they should be allowed to go into heaven. No, the verdict is already set. They're already condemned and the outcome is determined. Hell is final. Now, as we look at the foregoing information at the end of chapter 24 and the beginning of chapter 25, Jesus continues to give warnings. There are parables about being prepared for this because when he comes, there is no time to change anything. There's no time to change or to turn around. When he sits on the throne of glory, he's ready to start his kingdom. It's fast, it's settled, and it's final. And then let me also say this. We're talking about the second coming and future judgment. And you needn't think that if you die before Christ comes for this kingdom, before the second coming of Christ, if you die before that time, that you're going to escape the judgment that he talks about here. You need to understand that your death is actually the second coming of Christ for you. That you're going to meet Christ when you die. And he is your judge. And if you haven't trusted him, then there's no stopping to say hello as you whiz by the throne to go into hell. No, there aren't any more opportunities. Your spirit will go straight to hell and it'll be kept there until the resurrection of your body. And then both will be brought up at the great white throne and then you'll be put into a place of torment. There's no myth to this. 
If there's any myth at all, it's a myth that some people have the idea of a place called purgatory where you'll go for a while and then you'll get out. No, when you hit torment, when you hit the judgment of God, there is no escaping his wrath. Now, what I'm telling you today, these aren't pleasant thoughts. Preachers would much rather look at you from the pulpit and smile and say, God loves you. God loves you and have a nice day and go out and be a good person. And they'll hand you a book about your best life now, and that's really the only thing that they've got right. If you don't know Jesus Christ, your best life is right now, because if you leave this life without him, you're toast. Burn toast, actually, if you leave here without Christ. So you have to get this down. There are judgments to come, and the righteous are going to be separated for rewards, and the wicked are going to be separated for punishment. Now, I need to go on because we need to get a little bit more specific about the judgment mentioned in this passage. Number two is the people of judgment. What, what is the classifications? What are these classifications of people that are at this judgment? Now, before this judgment, there is the judgment seat of Christ. But that judgment is over. Those that are raptured were at that judgment. That's for the church age and they've gone through their judgment. And let me tell you something special again about that judgment, and I mentioned a moment ago, it's not to judge whether believers are going to get into heaven. There is no judgment for the sins of a believer. There is no judgment for us to be found guilty. We're never going to be judged for our guilt, and that's because Jesus took the guilt of all of our sins when he went to the cross of Calvary. All of the crimes that we have committed were placed upon Jesus, and he took that judgment. He went to the cross and he took the penalty as a dying substitute. And he suffered all of the hell that we ought to suffer. He was judged by the Father. Our sins were placed upon Jesus and he took the punishment of those sins. It was the just dying for the unjust. And so when you think of judgment of sin for Christians, you do need to know this. Yes, there was a judgment of sin because all sins are going to be judged But this judgment for us was taken by the Lord Jesus Christ when he went to the cross of Calvary. Now this is what the scripture says in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. Condemnation in that verse means judgment. There is no judgment for those that are in Christ Jesus. And so when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, it is not for sin. It is to be judged for faithful service. But in Matthew 25, verse 32, those that are gathered here at this judgment are not raptured saints. These are people that have been through the tribulation. There are two groups of these people. Now, the first of those is the sheep. In the scriptures... Believers are always the sheep. The sheep are the chosen ones of God. The sheep are Christians. Now, as we know, there have been a lot of sheep down through the ages of time. There have been a lot of sheep. But this is a particular sheep, a subset of all the sheep, a particular sheep from a particular time. These are those who have been gathered out of seven years of tribulation that has just ended. These are believers in Christ who survive the tribulation. Now, many of the sheep are killed during that time. They went straight away. 
to be with the Lord. They are the souls that we read about that are under the altar in Revelation chapter 6. There it says, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth. Now, this is the judgment that they're asking for, and these people are already in heaven, and they're dead. Well, they're dead to this world, that is. Their bodies are dead. They're living in heaven, of course. But the ones that we're talking about here that come up for judgment in Matthew 25 are believing survivors. Millions will become believers in the tribulation, and millions will stay in unbelief. The sheep are the believers, and that shows us that just because the church age is over, the preaching of the gospel is not over. The gospel was preached before the church ever got here, and the gospel will continue to be preached afterwards. What God is going to do, he's going to raise up 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel, and God will seal them, and he will make them witnesses of the gospel of Christ. And then the Bible tells us in Revelation 14 that God will have a special angel that will come and he will preach the gospel over the entire world and thus the promise is fulfilled that this world will not end until all the world has heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now some people will believe, some people do not believe, and the purpose of this judgment is to separate surviving believers from surviving unbelievers. So of all the people that are on the earth at that time, who is in and who is out? Well, we have a strong hint of the answer in verses 33 and 34. It says the king will separate the sheep from the goats. Now, we're going to get to the goats in just a minute. Sheep are set to one side. Goats are set to the other. Jesus said the sheep are going to the right and the goats are going to the left. Now, let me just say that he he is the king, but the right and the left here, this is not a political designation. The sheep are not the Tea Party, and the goats are not the liberal Democrats. Uh, This is not the right and left of a political kingdom, although certain comparisons could certainly be made. But the right side is the favored side. The right side is the favored side. Uh, Those of you that are In the fundamentals class, you know that the right side is the side of prominence, that the right side is the approved side, that the right side is the place of blessing. When Jacob blessed the sons of Joseph, you remember how that that, uh, Jacob scuttled the idea of who should get the blessing. The firstborn is the one who should receive the blessing, and so uh, Joseph guided the right, or guided the head of his of his firstborn Manasseh towards the right hand of Jacob. But as they uh, two sons approached Jacob, he crossed over his hands and he placed his right hand on the head of Ephraim. And why did he do that? Because Ephraim was the one who would be greater than Manasseh, and Ephraim had the favored status because the right hand is the place of blessing. So Ephraim received the blessing. Notice verse 34, Then shall the king say unto them on the right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There it tells us that the sheep are the blessed of the father. The sheep are believers. And in that verse, we're actually given the source of their salvation. 
The source of salvation, the one from whom all blessings flow, the one who is the fountain of all blessings, is our Father God. Whenever we speak of divine providence, that is always the purview of the Father. He is the source of all life. Jesus said, the king shall say. And he meant himself. He is the king. The king shall say, come ye blessed of my father. Now that tells us that they're a very special group. They're going to inherit the kingdom. Well, who are people that receive the inheritance? Well, in your family, it's family members that receive the inheritance. The inheritance goes to the family, and this tells us that they are in the father's family. They're going to inherit the kingdom. Now, I reminded you of this many, many times before. Everybody is not in the family of God. Despite what you've heard, everybody is not in the family of God. Those that are in the family of God receive the inheritance of God. Now, let me stop here because this is one of the parts that got me to thinking a little bit differently. When I had my predisposed position, I thought of this passage as final judgment. I placed it at the end, although the judgment of the redeemed didn't exactly line up with that, but that was okay because judgments are often put together. There are other passages that provide the concept of judgment, but they don't necessarily give us a timeline. For instance, uh, this example in John 5:28 and 29, Jesus said, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Now, there are two judgments and from that passage it appears that those two judgments are at the same time. But as we look at other places of Scripture, it cannot be at the same time. And so we find in John chapter 5 that the concept of judgment is taught, but a timeline or the sequence of judgments is not actually in that passage. So there are two judgments that we're talking about here. And, and because there are passages that, that show sequence and some that don't, I didn't really worry about whether we could match up the judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne with Matthew chapter 25. But then as I begin to think more about this, this can't be a final judgment because the Bible is here talking about a literal kingdom. And it says that there are people who are going to inherit this kingdom. And it seemed to me that he's not talking about the kingdom of heaven. He's speaking of a kingdom on the earth. Heaven doesn't seem to be the subject in this passage. And we see that as we go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 24 where he's consistently talking about a kingdom that's going to come to the earth. And the disciples were interested in that kingdom. And so I think that he's talking about a kingdom on the earth. They're going to inherit a kingdom where Christ is going to rule and reign from David's throne. And so we must be talking about living saints here and not dead ones. And the promise that we have is to both Jews and Gentiles, they're going to live, if they are believers in Christ, they're going to live in the kingdom of Christ on the earth. And then we notice something else that's very special. And you know that I couldn't miss this, that the kingdom was prepared for these special people from the foundation of the world. And that means that there was an eternal covenant and there was an eternal promise that this kingdom would be given to these people. Before the world was ever created, there was a people that was designated for this kingdom. 
Now, do you see how consistent that the Scriptures are on this subject? You stumble over it all over in Scripture. And if you're not careful, you're going to get bruises on your shins. As you read the Bible, as you stumble over the number of places in the Scriptures that teach the eternal covenant of God for the elect people of God. God knows who they are. And he has a list of their names from the foundation of the world. But I recently preached three sermons on that subject, and I'll not got to go through it again. You need to hear about something else. But this passage does teach election. But I'll pass over it with those brief comments. Now, here's another interesting part of it. This judgment is for living sheep as they're granted entrance into the kingdom. And there are actually two classes of saints that are going to live there. There will be saints that are in their physical bodies... And saints that are in their glorified bodies. The ones that are in their physical bodies are the ones that are alive at the end of the, trans, of the tribulation. They are transitioned in the physical body into the kingdom. Well, how? Well, it's a, it's a literal physical kingdom, isn't it? I mean, the kingdom is physical. It's on a physical earth. Jesus is going to be here physically. He'll move about the kingdom. He'll go from place to place and people will see him and they'll visit his throne in Jerusalem and they'll come to the millennial temple and people will come there in their physical bodies to see him. These are the people that we read about that are going to plant the crops in the millennial kingdom. We just read about that in, in uh, Psalm chapter 65, that they're going to be the ones that plant the abundance of the crops and they're going to live in the houses that are built and they'll live to be old, as other passages say, and they will have children. They are physical, and so they're going to do what physical people do. And all of those activities are described in the Old Testament, kingdom living in the Old Testament. Now, on the other hand, there are also saints that are in their glorified bodies. These are ones who are saved and they come back with Christ when he returns. They have received glorified bodies at the rapture. And according to the promise of Colossians 3 verse 4, they will return with Christ. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Now, guess who's in that number? The apostles are going to be there. They will receive that promise of Matthew 19 that they will come and sit on 12 thrones judging Israel. Now those that are in glorified bodies don't have children. Jesus taught that there is no procreation in the glorified body. So it's the living saints that will have the children. And these are two groups that will freely mingle with each other. Now you think, well, is that possible? Is it possible for a person in a physical body to live in the same place as a person in a glorified body? How are they going to interact? Well, I don't know everything there is to know, and none of us do, about what the glorified body is going to be like. But I do know that we can mingle. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. When Jesus was in his glorified body, you remember that after he was resurrected, that he appeared to the disciples, and he told them, See, here I am, I have flesh and blood. You, you can see that I'm real. And so Christ had a body, and Christ was able to mingle with people in their physical bodies. And so apparently, our body that is like his will have no problem being in fellowship with glorified saints. 
And then there's something else about these saints and their physical bodies. And I think it's all fascinating stuff. But they enter into the kingdom with a sinful nature. They're not glorified yet. And so they must have a sinful nature just like we have. So there is still going to be sin in the millennial kingdom because this is what sinners do. Sinners sin. But sin is going to be locked down like never before. These people are saved people that enter into the kingdom. So we're not going to see any legalized marijuana in the God's kingdom. There's not going to be any people getting drunk. There won't be any pedophiles or pornography. But there will be some sin. There are children that are born to these people, and they still have a sinful nature. And so I think that the second, the third, the fourth generation of those born into the kingdom are going to be quite different from those that actually entered at the very beginning. And so I think that after a thousand years of being ruled with a rod of iron, as the Word of God says, that these sinners have been stopped from doing what sinners want to do. They want to sin, and so they're going to be very upset about that. They're upset about the rule of a righteous king, and these are the ones who at the end of a thousand years are going to rise up and rebel. Satan will deceive them, and then God will destroy them. Now let's go to Revelation chapter 20, and let's take a look at that very quickly. When the thousand years are ended, God is going to set Satan loose... And the reason that he does is to bring the wicked descendants of these people that enter the millennial kingdom into judgment. See, you, you can't end the world with living people, can you? They have to die. That's inevitable. Revelation 20 and verse number 7 says, And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. Now, don't confuse this. This is not the battle of Armageddon. This is a different battle. This is at the end of the millennium. Verse 9, And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now you might wonder about this. How could anyone turn against Jesus Christ as the righteous king? Here in this kingdom, he's ruled in perfect peace. He's ruled with the richness of perpetual prosperity. How do they turn against him when they have everything they could ever want? There is no poverty. There is no disease. There are no wars. There is no famine. How do they turn against him? And it just shows you how depraved is the human heart. They don't like the rule of Christ. And because they don't like it, they don't like righteousness... They're going to turn against him. And isn't that what the Bible describes of all of us? That every one of us is like this. We hate Christ and we love sin. And so when these people have their sin cracked down on by God where he severely limits them, then they're going to be so unhappy they'll rise up against him. And you ask, why did they do that? Why would they do that? Why did they turn against the kingdom of a righteous king? Well, if you ask the question, then you need to ask also, why did they turn against him the first time? They killed the one who fed them. They killed the one who healed everybody and, and practically eradicated disease in Israel. They killed the one who raised the dead and delivered them from demons. He actually relieved the misery of thousands upon thousands of people. And yet they took him to a cross and they crucified him. Depraved hearts are not going to get any better. 
That's what the Bible describes of us. So how does the world end? Well, it can't end with living people. They keep having babies. The world can't end with with living people. And so the people that go into this kingdom are going to be judged. And the ones that get in are the sheep. They're the living saints who have received their commendation from God. And they go into the kingdom. But then there is that other group. There's that other group. And you know who they are. They're not going to get in. These are the goats. And it'll take me till 3 o'clock to tell you about the goats. But I'm out of time. Some of you think I'm well past my time. I'm getting ripe. Uh, So um, I'm not going to go into the goats today. Next week we're going to look at that. And I have some important observations that need to be made about the goats and what the Bible says about them. And then also about the millennial kingdom itself. Why do we believe that there is going to be a literal kingdom of God upon the earth? And we're going to explore that question next week in the sermon. But what I want you to take away today is this main idea. Judgment is coming. Now I could say that Jesus is coming, but this is exactly the same thing. He's coming with judgment. And whether you meet him in death or whether you meet him at that second coming... He's going to judge you. Now, thank God for this, that when he came the first time, the judgment of sin was taken upon him. And you have time right now to take advantage of the sin offering that he made. That if you will repent of your sins and you will trust Jesus Christ, that he will take that sin offering and he will apply it to you. But if you don't, then that judgment is going to fall on you. And you'll never be able to get out from under the weight of that judgment. It is eternal judgment. You need to trust him today because tomorrow is too late. And that's the side of Jesus that you need to see when he comes the second time. It's about judgment. And all of us are going to face him. Let us pray. Father, we come to you now and uh, we think about this terrible time of judgment that's coming. Uh, what we want most of all is for people to know Jesus Christ, to have already escaped that judgment by the fires of hell that were placed upon him at the cross as he suffered there for our sins. I pray, Lord, you'd speak to someone's heart today and help them to understand that this day is coming. We're going to be judged, and we have to have the right belief. We, we, can't, uh, we can't just pick and choose what we want to believe and pick a way that we want to pick. We must come your way, and that is through Jesus Christ, who is the one who will judge in righteousness. Lord, I pray that you would speak to someone's heart about that today. And then for us as Christians, may we understand just like those reformers taught about the second coming, that we should stay away from sin. We should keep sin out of our lives and do our best to live for you every day because the righteous wrath of God will fall. Lord, we pray that you would bless today. Speak to people in this time that we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.